welcome to Democratically 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies and personalities of the 2020 US election. And welcome to the fourth of our DNC Convention Watch special daily episodes. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. So I need to start by apologising to you for not having managed to produce an episode last night uh, for uh, the third night of the DNC convention. In fact, I did produce an episode and Skylar Baker-Jordan and I had a fantastic conversation. Um, only about 12 minutes of Mitch managed to record itself. Um, and of those 12 minutes from my holiday in Wales, I was unable to download or uh, upload any of that content um, in my Wi-Fi-less um, wind-ridden location here in uh, the middle of nowhere in Wales. And as a matter of fact, I'm recording this podcast as I speak to you uh, from my car, <laughs> having fled our tiny holiday cottage um, and found a place to try and get away from the wind and away from my family so that I could have a moment's peace to talk to you about last night's uh, speeches. But I really wanted to do that because there were two, in fact, there were more than two, but there were particularly two history making, um, bracing, um, very, very rich pieces of uh, speech making text that I wanted to talk to you about. And that was, of course, the speech of former President Barack Obama and uh, VP elect, VP designate, VP nominee. I was going to say VP elect, but not quite yet. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Kamala Harris. Um, I thought these two speeches were fascinating uh, to watch together. Um, you've got speeches by two history-making uh, presidential, you know, ticket candidates, the first black president and the first uh, black woman to be nominated um, for either major party, um, for, for either the president or the vice president. Um, and they did two very different jobs. Um, it's interesting to note Kamala Harris the normal, whatever normal might be in this day and age, but the, the often expected role for a vice presidential candidate is to be the one who sort of takes the fight to the other side. Um, VP speeches have a history of being more combative, more feisty, um, more adversarial against uh, a president, especially a president who's as ripe for controversy and adversity and, 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 and basically fighting as, as Donald Trump. But I think... Kamala Harris didn't make that choice. I was very interested in the in the content that you didn't get to hear last night. I was talking to Skylar about the two Kamalas. She's got a prosecutorial side to her, which is um, her excellent ability to really pursue prosecution, pursue questioning, be really be really firm in seeking answers. Um, and then she's got a kind of happy warrior side to her, a joyful side, um, a side that's about like the pleasure that she takes in life and just the, the happiness that she has on the campaign trail and the richness of her, of her joy in the world. And I felt the speech that she gave last night was really trying to do much more of the latter than the former. She was in embracing um, her, her own personal story as an example of the American story. Um, and I thought it was very beautifully done. I thought it was very touching. I thought it was a lovely piece of work. Um, it did have a lot of resonances with Barack Obama when he was trying to do the same thing. And one of the things that you have to just unfortunately call out is that it's often the case that for minority candidates, especially African-American candidates, they don't necessarily have um, access to the same kind of 
anger and feistiness that is available to white candidates. Um, Barack Obama was always very aware of not wanting to come off as the angry black man. Kamala Harris um, perhaps is is kind of in the same tradition of not wanting to um, be perceived in a certain way. Um, so instead, she went with, I thought, a very beautiful invocation of the American story, um, her own story, her mother's story. She touched very beautifully on her mother's story as a 19-year-old immigrant coming to this country, um, talks about how she came here for her dream of, of, of ending cancer, and then met Kamala's father um, during a civil rights march, how Kamala says that she, you know, she, she was in, you know, got a stroller's eye view of the fight for justice. It was really lovely um, storytelling and lovely narrative. And I think it did a lot of the job um, of, of introducing Kamala to the world. Um, because, you know, as much as, as much as she's known to a lot of people, um, I think a lot of the swing voters, especially that we want to reach in this election, are probably getting their first look at her. Um, and I think she gave them a lovely perspective. Um, but what she didn't do is prosecute the case against Donald Trump in particular. She certainly had some stern words, but mostly she was focused on showcasing herself as a representative of the best traditions of America. Um, it was really Barack Obama in his speech, the one immediately before Kamala Harris, um, who took the fight straight to Donald Trump. And he was, he was not ashamed. <laughs> and I thought it was really interesting to see Barack Obama, who um, I first came to know, and I think a lot of you probably first came to know, in his 2004 DNC convention speech. Now, if you remember in that speech, um, he talks about you know, there are, you know, people talk about a red America and a blue America, but we know they, you know, worship an awesome God in the blue states and they don't like federal agents, federal agents poking around in our libraries in the red states. He had this, this beautiful message about, um, kind of, we are, we, there is more that unites us than divides us. So there is, we have more in common than we have that separates us. So last night in his speech, he talks a little bit about, um, some of the things, some of the principles behind that. So he talks about the belief that your opponents aren't un-American just because they disagree with you. I'm quoting now that a free press isn't the enemy, but the way we hold officials accountable, that our ability to work together to solve big problems like a pandemic depends on a fidelity to facts and science and logic and not just making stuff up. But then he goes on to say, None of this should be controversial. These shouldn't be Republican principles or Democratic principles. They're American principles, resonant with his DNC speech of 2004. But then he says, but at this moment, the president and those who enable him have shown they don't believe in these things. So it, it felt to me, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, like an update on his 2004 convention speech, that he was almost saying, um, I believed then and I still believe now that Americans don't differentiate. But actually, I see now that there are factions within the Republican Party, and unfortunately, they are leading the Republican Party right now, that don't believe in any of the things that I believe unite America as a great country. Um, and that was a, you know, in, in its own quiet way, that was a shocking thing for me to hear because Barack Obama, whilst I think that is 100% true, um, Barack Obama is somebody who has always been, you know, if he had a fault, it was it was too much hopefulness, you know. Um, he saw himself as a pragmatic person, but he also believed in his own ability, perhaps too much so, um, to, to kind of heal the divides that were, um, that were dividing America. So it's quite something to see him explicitly call out the fact that actually... Um, that divide is that divide is very deep and perhaps unbridgeable in some aspects of the Republican Party. 
Um, but there was another part of Obama's speech that really struck me that I wanted to also um, call out, which really hit home for me. And it was one of those moments. It was one of those, I'll be honest, it was one of those crying in the car moments, right? I watched this speech while my husband, my poor husband was driving us around on our holiday, um, heading to the beach, um, ahead of the rain. And, um, so I watched it on my phone just to make sure that I was up to speed for this podcast. And, um, he has a moment where he talks about whatever our background, we're all the children of Americans who fought the good fight. Grand, great grandparents working in fire traps and sweatshops without rights or representations, farmers losing their dreams to dust, Irish and American and Asians and Latinos told to go back where they came from, Jews and Catholics, Muslims and Sikhs made to feel suspect for the way they worship, black Americans chained and whipped and hanged, spit on for trying to sit at lunch counters, beaten for trying to vote. And then he says, if anyone had a right to believe that this democracy did not work and could not work, it was those Americans. And he says, but they didn't. They, they carried on, they struggled through, they found a way forward. And then he makes a link between those Americans and especially the young people that were uh, protesting this summer, um, you know, both, you know, and, and over the last few years, both everything from the Women's March to Black Lives Matter to the uh, March for Our Lives movement against gun control. And he basically makes a link between all of these things and the idea that, you know, there is a way through, even if it's hard, even if it's painful. And um, I found that a very compelling articulation of the message, the idea that we don't have the right to give up because our ancestors had it every bit as bad as we did and had every reason not to believe in um, the prospect of an American democracy, and yet they didn't give up, and yet they struggled on, and yet they built the country that we have today. Um, I thought there was a there was a lot in that, and I thought it was very bracing as a call to action. There was almost a moment of, how dare you? How dare you um, give up or think of giving up when those who came before you didn't and you wouldn't be here without them? Um, and I also thought you could see how he was using, I mean, he was certainly referencing the civil rights struggle, but he also talked about the battle for labor rights. And he also talked about kind of the immigrant struggle. So he's trying to say, whoever you are, you've been through some part of some part of this struggle. Um, so yeah, really, really interesting night of speeches. Um, and God, it's really good to have people, um, people standing up to lead the country who are admirable. Um, I did want to say one other thing about Kamala's speech, which I thought was extraordinary and beautiful, and I really admired her poise and her grace. Um, now, they have put her, just from a scene point of view, from a scene-setting point of view, they have put her in a basically a mock DNC stage. So it looked like it was a podium, and it looked like the background of what would be a normal convention, even though it was a virtual convention. And they even had, kind of when the camera panned back, they had placards of the states like you would, but then they had kind of a few people, I don't know if they were journalists or if they were carefully chosen, and um, uh, witnesses sort of sat at socially distanced distant spaces um, in chairs. And then when she gave her speech, of course, it was just dead silence. And you're used to having these big applause lines for a speech like that, especially for me, it really hit home because she was on a stage that looked like a DNC stage. And the staging choice made what was a very beautiful speech made the applause lines, what would have been the applause lines, the moments when you knew that there would have been a swelling crowd, it made them feel more aching and empty. Um, and I don't know if there was, 
you know, if this was the intention of the stagers, um, cause there was a poignancy to it, but it really, it really hit home for me how, how distant and abandoned and lost the country is to see what ought to be a great moment of celebration. And I was particularly, um, my heart kind of went out to Kamala at the moment when she speaks the words and she talks about how much it would have meant for her, her sadly deceased mother to hear her speak the words, I accept your nomination for vice president of the United States. And in any other year, in any other convention, there would have been a swell. There would have been a surge. Like she would have been lifted off her feet by the shouts of the crowd, the enthusiasm, the excitement. It was a history making moment. And I just had this feeling of she's here all on her own. You know, we've left her out there on her own, even though obviously it wasn't of our doing. Um, there was this real moment of sadness of what should have been a moment of such joy and such coming together and com- and companionship, especially for black women, for Asian women, for women of all you know of all of all types, um, and for Americans, frankly, to to get behind this woman and to honor her story and her life um, with a you know remarkable achievement. Just the quiet that came at that moment. It felt, it felt poignant and sad and, um, you know, I wish her nothing but the best and I think she gave a beautiful speech and I was so happy to, um, get, have her have her moment in the sun because I did think during the primary, um, she, she had some wonderful things to say and, you know, she had some, some sharp moments in the debate. She gave some great speeches on the campaign trail, but with 24, 26 candidates running in the race, nobody really got their time to shine properly in the sun, in the sunlight. And I, I always felt Kamala had dropped out sooner than I would have liked. I was still actively considering her as my, as my choice when she dropped out of the race. She was kind of in my top three right from the start of the candidates I wanted to vote for. And so I was really happy to see her have this moment, uh, to see her carry it off with such grace. And I know it's shallow, but I think for my other women in the crowd, I've just got to say she looked amazing. Her hair stunning. I loved her outfit. She was wearing a really striking burgundy. Um, just lovely. I mean, everything about it was lovely. Um, you know, she's obviously a very beautiful woman anyway. Um, and she's got such elegance and such style. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, what else can you say? It's such a contrast from the people who are leading the country even as we speak. Um, and of course I should, I should touch on the news that former Trump campaign, uh, campaign chairman, uh, Steve Bannon has been arrested in a fundraising scam. Um, I should also point out that the rush that, that the Senate, the bipartisan Senate committee, um, on the Russia investigation has, um, has come out with an extremely damning report, uh, confirming, uh, the president's complicity in, uh, in, in, in activity, um, and the fact that the Senate bipartisan committee has, um, made referrals, criminal referrals to, against a number of individuals closely associated with, with Donald Trump, including his son, Donald Trump Jr. Um, I, I'm going to point out this news. Um, it sickens and horrifies me, but of course it's not shocking. We, we know who these people are. Um, I'm, I'm over being shocked by it. I just feel determined about it. So, um, it was an extraordinary night.
and um, I've got one more night's worth of, of content to cover for you. Uh, tomorrow I'll be hoping to speak to a, a, a Bernie Sanders convention delegate who can tell you his take on the, on, on the convention so far, um, and we'll discuss Joe Biden's um, own history-making speech accepting his nomination. I will speak to you then. And that's it. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can reach me on Twitter at KarenJR. That's K-A-R-I-N-J-R. I would especially love to hear what you made of any of the speeches. Um, were you as moved as I was by what Barack and Kamala had to say? Are you looking forward to hearing Joe speak? What do you think about Joe's speech? Um, if you've seen it by then, it'll be happening in the wee small hours in the morning my time. Um, if you have not done so yet, um, please, 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 I beg you, I cannot possibly beg you enough, uh, register to vote and request your absentee ballot. Uh, if you intend to vote by mail if you do not vote by ma- intend to vote by mail I should say just think about how you're going to vote make a plan make sure you've you've sorted it out uh, think about are you going to vote early think about if you want to get your ballot absentee and then drop it off a voting place you can do that if you're an American abroad like me make sure you've sorted out your absentee ballot uh, you can do that at votefromabroad.org or if you're an American back home the website that can sort you out is vote.org fantastic voting information on both of those websites um, I please 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 if you've enjoyed this podcast please rate or review it really does help to let people know that the podcast is out there and tell your friends um, um, you know, I am. I, I, this podcast is not affiliated with any other organization or entity. It is just me talking to you, and I so appreciate any support that you can provide. Um, and I don't ask you for money, so uh, just tell a friend is the is the support that I could need. Or better yet, tell a friend to vote because that's what I care about the most. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Mm-hmm.